All right, this is Patrick from the Bloodstream Podcast, and joining me from the Cheat Codes Podcast on this very special cross-promotional emergency pod, Doctors Mike and Amar. So to state the obvious, the three of us were communicating about the COVID-19, the coronavirus, and what our respective sickle cell and bleeding disorders broadly communities are experiencing and thinking about. We thought it'd be helpful to come to you from that point of view on what you should be thinking about, what's important to know about this hysterical coronavirus. Uh, let me just start with um, Mike and Amar. What have you found at the clinic? What have the conversations been within the clinic the last few days? You know, a lot of our conversations just sort of between doctors has been um, sort of addressing the gray areas like what are what are we thinking about and how do we feel and who should we be testing? Things like that have been discussed sort of frequently in our clinic amongst ourselves. We just walked into the hospital right now uh, to a screening station, actually, that was ready to go and was asking us if we had upper respiratory symptoms or fevers. Um, but Dr. Mike, what about you? Yeah, and uh, Amar just uh, sanitized his hands right before the podcast. So. Um, yeah, no, patients have been asking. I even had a patient recently who had come back from um, Milan and had um, a sore throat and um, wound up actually having strep throat. Um, but there was a lot of concern, you know, could this be COVID-19? Um, and I, I think a lot of people have just been asking, you know, is this another one of these, you know, sensational stories uh, um, or is this the real deal? And, and, you know, should I be worried about this? And, you know, I should say we're recording this now. It's just after 1.30 Eastern uh, on Thursday. Um, so what is the answer to that question as it stands right now, Dr. Mike, as best as you can ascertain? How much of this is hysteria and overblown? And how much of this is something that we need to be taking really seriously? Yeah, so, I, you know, I, I think um, it's probably a little bit of both. And it always frustrates me to see... Um, people confidently talking about things about which they know nothing. So, you know, early on in this, I heard people say, you know, it's dumb that people are even worrying about this. The flu is a real thing and you should be worried about it. And the flu is a real thing and you should be worried about it. But that doesn't mean this isn't. And I heard people on the other side of the coin say, you know, this is going to be the 1918 Spanish flu and we're all going to be wiped out and all sorts of conspiracy theories. And I, I think, you know, it's, it's uh, a little bit hard to say, but I would say over the last week or two, we've gotten a lot of um, useful information um, that makes me think it's, it's, it's somewhere in between there. I mean, I think uh, the flu kills a lot of people every year. Um, this is probably um, a little bit um, more potent in that way than the flu is. Um, how widespread is the, the spread going to be? How long is this going to last? I think those are still questions we don't know. Um, is this going to be as severe when we're picking it up earlier and we're in a setting of Western medicine? I, I think we don't know. I think it's never good to panic, but it's, it's always good to understand what's going on and be prepared. So I would say, you know, don't worry about this, but do do all the things you can do to protect yourself. Yeah, and I, I, I'm just going to chime in real quick, Patrick. So I was one of the people that early on was like, eh, I can't be worried about this. And then about, I don't know, maybe five days ago, I started finding myself on Amazon looking at Lysol wipes and hand sanitizer and starting to get increasingly nervous just internally. Um, but, uh, you know, we're really lucky and really fortunate to live in a scientific community right now that's so robust that's able to have such a fast response 
where we're in a position that the New England Journal of Medicine, for example, just published uh, the experience of like the first 500 patients from China, from Wuhan, to give us a better idea of what to expect. And we're, you know, um, moving along really quickly. And we'll get to that a little bit later in this conversation. Yeah. So what to you, uh, for either one of you, Mike or Amar, what stands out to you as the most critical information that people should be aware of? And uh, what stands out as the most critical critical practices that people should be uh, taking seriously during this outbreak? Yeah, I guess, you know, just to take a little step back, um, I think, you know, we always talk about viruses and uh, this is a coronavirus. Um, and viruses are basically germs or bugs that... Um, they can't live on their own. They don't make their own energy. And they're sort of parasites that hijack your body's machinery to copy themselves. And they use your body to spread maybe by sneezing or coming out in your saliva. Um, and some of them don't cause any disease at all. Um, some of them have probably helped humans over time, help us get mutations that are beneficial. Um, but some of them do cause um, human diseases. So this one is a coronavirus, which is a, a specific type of virus, and they call it corona because if you have a really powerful microscope and you look at it, um, it looks like a crown, um, which is uh, um, what the word corona means. And coronaviruses are really common. Um, they they um, are also known as the common cold and may cause sore throat, cough, runny nose, fever, um, and they usually come in the fall and winter. So, Mike, um, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I think not, you just said not, something not that very is, is very important and, and easily overlooked, that what we commonly know as the common cold is actually a form of the coronavirus. So most people have never heard of coronavirus before a few weeks ago. But am I, am I understanding correctly that actually what we know as the common cold has been the coronavirus, a version of it anyway, all along? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so, you really know, interestingly, so on, along the same lines, there was I saw this like conspiracy post online saying, if you look at the back of your Clorox wipes, it says kills coronavirus. How did they know coronavirus was coming? Um, but yeah, exactly what Mike said. We, we've known about coronaviruses for a long time. This happens every year as the common cold. And, and so coronavirus is a big family. There's different uh, strains of it or different members. And uh, this one is sort of, you know, the bad cousin or something. Um, it's a, a version called a beta coronavirus, and that includes other coronaviruses like um, SARS, which was an um, infection that also came out of bats out of China and, and um, was really very deadly, but fortunately didn't spread very well um, about a decade ago. And then there was the Middle East respiratory virus, MERS, um, that was also a beta coronavirus. So this one, the virus is actually known as SARS-CoV-2, um, and the disease it causes is, is COVID-19. Um, and it, it's amazing, like Amar said, I mean, medicine and, and science have really advanced to the point where this, this thing just came up in the middle of December. So it's like two and a half months old. And it's already got a name, a vaccine working on it, a drug that may be working in, th in uh, phase three trials. We've tracked down that uh, the, the epicenter of the outbreak was uh, um, in Wuhan uh, city in Hubei province of China. And it probably started at a food market. And they know it, it, it probably came from bats. So, I mean, really, in two and a half months to know all of that, and, and then, uh, as Amar said, there's this New England Journal paper that outlines the first 1,099 cases in China um, 
or not maybe not the first 1099 but 1099 of the first cases in China and really gives us a lot of details about what the symptoms are um and how, you know how it was spread um and also you know how severe it is and and the complications what patients were experiencing complications so we've really in a very short time learned a lot about this virus um, there's already tests available to, to and that's very different from like the Spanish flu for example right at that time this type of robust communication robust science wasn't a thing um, so we are lucky that we're getting you know some information from our colleagues around the world about what's going on what they're dealing with and just to give you a broader scope so right now as of 8 p.m. last night there are 96,720 confirmed COVID-19 cases of which 3,308 have died. But more importantly, 53,956 of them have recovered. And of the 96,720, 80,411 of them are in China. So there's 16,309 cases in the rest of the world combined, um, of which only 469 at this point, 3% of them are being classified as serious infections requiring intensive care. So it's a good idea to step back a little bit and get just a, a sort of a global view of, of where we are right now, where really still the epicenter is where the burden is currently. And I know this morning here in California, there was a state of emergency announced. I think yesterday, Mayor Eric Garcetti in Los Angeles had made a similar announcement on behalf of the city. But to the point that you were just making, Amar, there's a hundred, I'm looking at something from livescience.com right now, which identifies 158 cases within the U.S. in total. So to the point you're making, while there are 96,000, nearly 96,000 people, that's a lot of people, the vast majority in China, and as you further break down how many of them are actually considered critical, how many of them are here in the U.S., it starts to get more and more, I mean, I get calm the, the further into the numbers we get because it seems not to make light of it but it seems as though it's not quite as severe as the uh kind of cultural response here in the u.s once you actually dig into the numbers do you i don't know do you agree with that yeah i absolutely agree with that i think that um it's easy especially when you're getting bombarded by social media it's easy to get caught in a little bit of the hype storm um but the data is telling a story that um, we should be listening to in that. The, and I think, you know, Dr. Dr. Mike will get into this, but the data really shows us who's at risk, who's dying, who we should be worried about. Yeah. So maybe uh, I'll, I'll touch base on that um, based on this paper that was in the New England Journal of Medicine um, this week. And this was uh, turned around really quickly from China and uh they, they compiled data um, from 1,099 patients um, who were confirmed to have um, the COVID-19. Um, and, and they looked at a number of different things about these patients. So they looked at um, gender. So about 41% of them were women. Um, so it seemed to have a little bit of a male predominance in China, but affecting men and women. Um, and, and then they looked at um, you know, how many of them had um, severe disease, um, and that, that seemed to be about 16% had, you know, significant pulmonary infection, and then how many of them had, you know, really serious complications of that, and for that, they included um, people who were in the ICU, 
um, people who needed ventilation support, and people who died. And 6% of the patients they identified were in the ICU. Um, five, uh, sorry, 2.3% needed uh, um, mechanical ventilation, and 1.4% died. Um, I, I think it's really important to point out, though, when you look at these numbers, um, th these were of the people who are identified as having uh, full-blown COVID-19 infection. So there are probably many, many more people who got exposed to the virus. Maybe they had a little bit of cold symptoms. Maybe they didn't have any symptoms. Um, and so they're not included in the, in the denominator there. So this is 1.4%, not of the people who are exposed or even the people who maybe got the virus, but 1.4% of the people who were sick enough that they got tested, got identified. Um, so yeah, so the total rate's probably lower than that. And that, that. that phenomenon that Dr. Mike is explaining is kind of what we're seeing in America, where you have 159 confirmed cases and 11 deaths, right? So it makes it seem like 10% of the patients who get this virus are dying. But really what's happening is only the sickest, most challenging patients are getting tested. If you test everybody across the board, you'd see that number plummet. So in, in this study, they also looked at, you know, what kind of symptoms were people having? Um, and they, they defined uh, fever as 37.5 degrees Celsius, which is like 99.6 or higher, which is a little lower than we generally say fever here. Um, but about 45% of the patients had a fever going into the hospital, and almost 90% eventually developed a fever. So fever is common with this. Um, most of the patients also had cough. And then um, a lot of patients had this lung finding, which we call ground glass. Um, and this is an inflammatory pattern in the lungs. Um, and they had um, obviously difficulty in breathing. What was interesting was they did not have pink eye um, conjunctivitis. Um, they, they did not have a lot of runny, runny stuffy nose, nose yeah. which we sometimes associate with the coronavirus. They did not have a lot of sore throat, and they did not have diarrhea or, or rashes. So, um, so re really, the virus seems to be um, fever and cough and, and these lung findings. And I think that's a little bit helpful because, you know, you get different symptoms with the flu, which is also going around now. Some of them overlap, like fever and cough, um, but the you know generalized body aches, the um, stuffy nose, those kind of things uh, tend not to go with this coronavirus. Um, when they looked at who was getting it, there were some interesting things there. So um, the average age was um, about 47 in their group, and the patients who were having more severe disease tended to be older. Um, but what was really interesting was almost no, none of the children um, got the disease, and, and those that did, it wasn't severe. Um, so I, I, I thought that was really interesting. And then the patient... The patients who were doing poorly, um, the ones who wound up on ventilators or in ICUs or, or even died from the disease, um, tended to have a lot of what we call comorbidities. Um, so, so these, yeah, these are like uh, other diseases you might have, like diabetes or lung disease or heart disease or kidney disease. And having those things made it a whole lot more likely um, that you could get into problems. Um, on the labs, you know, you wouldn't know this unless you went to the doctor, but uh, 
The patients did have low lymphocyte counts, which is a common finding in viral infections, but it seemed to be particularly true here. So I, I think, you know, a week ago, we didn't know all of these things. We didn't have this data, but I, I think we're starting to get a picture of what this looks like. Um, and I, I think one of the important findings they had was that some of the patients who were diagnosed later and in bigger cities got to the hospital quicker and the, and the morbidity um, and the death rate was lower. So I think getting, getting in and getting treated early um, with supportive care is, is, is helpful. And Dr. Mike, I wonder if you could maybe, and, and Dr. Zadie as well, speak a little bit to what this means for our greater bleeding disorders community, people affected by sickle cell, hemophilia, and so on. Dr. Mike, we were talking off mic about how NHF's MASAC, the Medical and Scientific Advisory Council, released a statement a few days ago. Maybe if you could give us a sense of what for our community specifically should we be thinking about? Yeah, so I, I think... Um... The, the biggest things are the things that um, are maybe not specific to our community, but are things that we should all do. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, in general, um, you know, the stuff that we we always talk about. So hand washing, um, you know, this this has become now a trend where we're talking about the Ebola handshake where you're touching elbows instead of shaking hands. You see people touching feet instead of sort of uh, shaking hands to prevent transmission of the virus. But keeping your hands clean, trying to not touch your face. There, there was some staggering statistic about people touching their face 2,000 times a day on average um, without even rec realizing it. So it's such a subconscious thing, right? You're rubbing your eyes. You're like, you know, touching your lips. So you just never know. Um, but in a, in a situation like this, you want to really minimize um, the ability of this sort of virus to to get into your body. And it's going to get in through, through one of these sort of areas. Um, we um, obviously want to avoid people who are sick, right? So there's been this huge controversy on face masks. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll give you an example of it. Yesterday I was looking for a face mask in clinic and I couldn't find one, right? And um, that's, I'm not saying it's because there's a mass hysteria and people are buying face masks, but that's what's going to happen is people are buying face masks uh, sort of in the community and eventually healthcare workers are going to run out of them. Um, and there's different types of face masks when we talk about this. So we have the standard face mask that, you know, people wear when they are not feeling well or they walk into a hospital. But then there's this N95 respirator that um, is sort of this blue, more rigid, sort of circular um, mask that really grips your, your face sort of more tightly. And all hospital... Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. It almost looks like something you'd see on like a, a soldier or in some sort yeah. of... Yeah, uh, it's kind of like, <laughs> a, it's of like a, a plastic version of what film. Bane had on his face in Batman. Yes, that's exactly what it looks like. Yeah, so, um, you know, we actually, we actually get fitted for these when we start working here. So they put you in a room and they uh, release some really noxious smell and they ask you if you can smell it to make sure that, you know, air is not seeping in. Um, so those N95 masks uh, really should not be just used for the common public, just kind of trying to avoid this virus. And, and it's not that, you know, we want to protect ourselves better than uh, other people protect themselves. It's just not effective. So doctors wear um, regular face masks when they go in and see a sick patient and they're going to be within a couple of feet of a sick patient for a short period of time. And then we dispose of those and wash our hands immediately. If you walk around all day with a face mask, um, it's not effective. Virus can get around it. 
and it concentrates um, all sorts of things on the outside of the face mask as you suck air through it and then you'll touch the face mask or you'll take the face mask off and that yeah. spreads that to your hands yeah you're constantly adjusting it right and that that breaks that rule of not touching your face and and then those n95 masks like dr zadie said they have to be fitted and they're very uncomfortable and hard to breathe in um i i hate when i you know i have a patient with tb not just because the, the patient's suffering but because i have to wear that mask and uh so i you know i i think it's it's not practical and it, it doesn't help um, I, I think another important thing you can do is if you are sick, um, see your doctor. And if your doctor thinks your symptoms and your history fit with this, um, there are now tests available. There weren't a week ago. They've been working very quickly on this. Um, but if, if they think you might have it, then you need to stay away from people too. Um, if you're healthy enough to be at home, um, you, you know, sometimes you can't avoid your own household contacts, but you shouldn't be going out in public. And I heard a story on the radio today about a guy from Dartmouth who uh, went to his doctor, got tested. The doctor told him to stay away from people. So he went to some giant event with hundreds of people. And now you've got hundreds of exposures. And um, this is, you know, how these kind of things spread. So um, I think we need to take take that stuff very seriously. Um, but getting back to your specific question, so I think people with sickle cell or hemophilia should do all of those things we just talked about that, um, that you know, everybody should do. Sickle cell gets a little bit tricky with the pulmonary stuff. So with the lung stuff, especially because sickle cell patients are already one of the number one reasons for their death is related to lung issues. So we call it acute chest syndrome usually. Um, and, and these individuals with COVID-19, really the thing that's getting them sick is this lung involvement, this pneumonia sort of that we're seeing. And, and I think that's important for our warriors to think about, um, you know, if you're starting to have uh, cough, any difficulty breathing, get in to see your center quickly because um, the, this uh, disease will probably be spreading and uh, it, it happens fast. And, and we know from this limited Chinese study that, you know, the people in the cities who got in earlier had better outcomes. Um, in terms of hemophilia, um, as you mentioned, Patrick, um, MASAC did put out um, a statement about this, and they, they referred to a couple of the, the existing MASAC guidelines. Um, I know everybody probably has these memorized MASAC document 242, um, which, which basically says, you know, keep, keep some clotting factor on hand. Um, so, you know, if, if emergencies arise, you'll have it available. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a potential concern um, for a lot of things, mostly face masks right now, but it could be a lot of things in the future, about the supply chain. So um, a lot of our products come from China. Um, China has some travel restrictions and um, people not uh, able to go to work, and, and that's creating uh, supply chain problems. Um, so Roche put out a statement uh, saying basically – this seems to be under control, and they're they're not expecting any interruption with their product. Um, I'm sure the other manufacturers will do so soon. Um, but you can imagine if that came up, you would want to have some factor at your house. So I, I would say don't hoard, don't panic, but you do want to always make sure that you're prepared if you had a bleed. Um, and then I, I think they also reiterated um, a MASAC document 253, which talks about... Um, 
the ways that plasma-derived products are tested and um, protected and that um, they expect that that should uh, be sufficient for this as well. Um, so I, I think those were sort of the specific messages for, for people with hemophilia. Um, but I think all of us yeah. should probably follow those general, general guidelines. And Dr. Mike, hemophilia.org being NHF's website, as more information that's specific to people with hemophilia or von Willebrand disease in those products, as, as more is made available, hemophilia.org will be a place people can go for information. For the sickle cell warriors out there, is there a particular destination that you would recommend people checking in on for information? Because I know there's different sources of information. Sometimes it's conflicting. Where should people be going for updated information that they can trust? Yeah, so SCDAA is a good source. Um, I looked there today, and they didn't have anything specifically on COVID-19. There was the Sickle Cell Society in the U.K., um, did have a statement about uh, COVID-19, but it, it, it basically said, you know, cover your uh, mouth and nose when you cough and uh, wash your hands and um, try to avoid sick contacts and don't touch your face. So, Dr. Mike, I'm, like just thinking about it, if we had a sickle cell warrior that came in, hypothetically, God forbid it doesn't happen with COVID-19, with pulmonary lung findings, um, really, I mean, I think that we would treat it just as we would any other sickle cell sort of infection, pneumonia, antibiotics, IV fluids, um, perhaps transfusion if you have lung it involvement. Is. Absolutely. But I, I think the important thing is, um, you know, a lot of colds you might be able to just shake off. Um, this this one's potentially more serious. So Yeah, it seems like even without underlying pathology, patients are coughing for two, three weeks on average with this. So I would say, you know, talk to your doctor. Um, go in and see your doctor if, if you have an infection and, and you might be concerned. So I know I need to let you guys get back to your jobs. Is there anything we haven't covered, anything else you'd like the warriors and uh, the bleeders out there to know about when it comes to COVID-19 and the coronavirus? Yeah, I would say this is changing quickly and, uh, you know, keep keep yourself educated. Um, I, I think there's a lot of optimistic things going on. Um, Congress just approved $8.3 billion in emergency funding to work on this. Um, that's a lot of money. Um, I was listening to a Senate hearing, and, and Dr. Anthony Fauci from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease um, was on the panel, and he said uh, within six weeks they should have a vaccine ready um, and and that they think within um, seven months they could have it in, in humans. Um, there's a drug um, from uh, Gilead that has been used for serious viral infections um, in in uh, Ebola and in, I think, the MERS outbreak. And um, amazingly, um, this medicine, Remdesivir, um, is already in a phase three clinical trial in China and, and in Nebraska. Um, so I, I think, you know, things are moving quickly. Um, Keep yeah. keep in touch with it, but but don't worry or panic. I just do the things the you should supposed you, you should yeah, do. Yeah, I think that's the key is just not freaking out, knowing that there's a high likelihood that people are going to get this, and there's a high likelihood that people who get it are going to do fine. That seems to be right. what the probabilities are saying, and and that's sort of what the data is telling us too. And then for all of us, just making sure we're washing our hands and doing the preventative things we can do. And as the point was made earlier, if you are someone who finds out that you do have it, even if you are not particularly 
um, sickened by it, so to speak. If you are contagious, you need to take seriously um, to some degree of self-quarantining and not going to big events and not contributing to the spread. So, um, Dr. Mar... We, we didn't Dr. mention Mar it, uh, but it, it the virus has uh, what we call an incubation period of two to seven days. So usually after you get exposed, you get sick and uh, within a week. And um, after you get sick, um, you're probably still shedding for about 14 days. And that includes even if you're not having symptoms. Mm. So That's important, important information. Dr. Mike Callahan and Dr. Amara Zaidi from the Comprehensive Sickle Cell Center at the Children's Hospital of Michigan, also the hosts of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast. Thank you for joining me here uh, to talk about this. And hopefully we don't have to do another one of these. But if there is something, if there is an inflection point in coronavirus and its impact on our community. I have a feeling the three of us will be back with another emergency podcast. Uh, so thank you guys very much, and I'll let you get back to your jobs. Thanks, Patrick. Bye.